This is Mentor Me, a conversation with. Up this month, Doug Fields talks to Marv Penner, a specialist in hurting students and helping kids through self-harm like cutting. And now, it's Mentor Me. Well, hey everybody, uh, this is Doug Fields with my good, good friend, Marv Penner. And um, Marv is... Uh, a veteran, veteran youth worker. He's, in my opinion, one of the only guys that's really talking about in a significant way some of the stuff that we're dealing with with self-harm in the youth ministry space. I know there are other people talking about it, but nobody has the back of a youth worker like Marv does. Marv, um, spend one minute and tell tell who you are. Like, for people don't know who you are and your youth ministry legacy and history, just catch us up on that. Well, first off, um, I'm a Canadian, and I've been involved in youth ministry for uh, about 40-plus years now. Uh, it's all I've ever wanted to do, and uh, the, uh, the thought that I can still do it at this point in my life is, is one of my greatest joys. Uh, I started out in camp ministry like lots of youth people do, uh, moved into a local church setting where I had the privilege of being uh, at one church for uh, about 14 years. Uh, then uh, jumped into the classroom, uh, taught youth ministry uh, in a college and seminary environment, but uh, continued my work as a volunteer youth worker in my community uh, during that whole time. And then just recently, I have, uh, have moved into a position where I'm uh, committed to uh, resourcing youth workers uh, to, to training uh, both volunteer and vocational youth workers across the country. Um, and, and really uh, investing as best I can in parents, uh, who I still think are uh, some of the best youth workers in our churches. That's great. Well, we're going to talk about cutting, and you wrote a book. What's the title of your book? Uh, the book's called Hope and Healing for Kids Who Cut, although it's a bit of a misnomer because self-injury uh, is so much more uh, complex than just cutting. Cutting certainly uh, the, uh, the self-injurious behavior of choice, um, especially for girls, uh, but it's only one of many ways that kids harm themselves. Uh, I just felt like if I called it uh, Hope and Healing for Kids Who Cut, uh, it would be clear that um, that was the subject because that's what most kids relate to. Yeah. Well, and let's kind of go after some basics. So I've told you a little bit about the audience of this Mentor Me Audio is youth workers, um, some paid, some volunteer, but also many youth workers who have told us at Download Youth Ministry that they put this audio into their volunteers' hands. Right. So Marv and I, uh, what a... I wish you could see where we're sitting because we're looking over the city of Nashville. We're on the fourth floor of a convention center. So there's a little country music in the background that I don't know if we'll be able to get out of this thing, but we tried to sneak into rooms. leave it just to make it authentic. <laughs> That's true. We tried to sneak into some rooms here at the convention center and they were all locked. So we're kind of sitting out in the middle of a hallway hiding from people. But um, Marv, tell us, you know, so the kids that, you know, oftentimes we go to the end, like, okay, I've got a kid in my small group and they're cutting. Yeah. What do we do? What do we need to know about them? Do you want to kind of give a basic primer on self-injury? Well, let me just begin by saying uh, that uh, cutting is one of those under-the-radar behaviors in most cases. Uh, and um, a lot of naive youth workers just believe that it's not part of their world uh, or their kids' world simply because it's not visible. Uh, and the truth of the matter is it's not visible because uh, kids are often very committed to hiding it. And so the fact that you may not be hearing about it or seeing about it, uh, or seeing it rather, uh, is not an indication that it's not there. In fact, one of the ways that you could test this is just by asking the other students uh, in your, uh, or the students in your, in your group, are, are you aware of anyone who's self-injuring? And you'll be amazed. Um, I've rarely met a teenager who doesn't know at least one person who is actively self-injuring right now. Uh, so it's probably there 
uh, at, uh, at some level. Uh, but let me run real quickly to what I think is the most important thing that people need to understand uh, about self-injury. You know, it's been called all sorts of things like self-mutilation and self-harm and uh, a lot of negative words associated with it, and rightly so, I get that. But to the person who is self-injuring, if we can understand this one thing, it will change dramatically the way we relate to kids and the way they will feel like we care for them. And this one thing that I'm talking about is that we need to understand that for the person who's involved in self-injurious behavior, they experience it as self-care. That sounds oxymoronic. Yeah, that's weird. It sounds bizarre that a behavior that is clearly destructive in physical and uh, you know, probably emotional and spiritual ways would be experienced by the person doing it as self-care. But once we understand that, then we can begin to engage in meaningful conversations with kids uh, about what it is that they're trying to medicate themselves from, what it is uh, that they're trying to accomplish through this behavior. Uh, because this, like all behaviors, uh, actually is driven by a purpose. Uh, and uh, it's those purposes that we need to understand, and it's actually those purposes that we need to address rather than uh, just focusing on the behavior itself. Yeah, so why do they see it as self-care? Well, um, generally speaking, um, self, self-injurious behavior and, and SIB uh, is, the, uh, is the acronym that's being used. In fact, uh, in the technical language now, uh, it's actually NSSIB, non-suicidal self-injurious behavior is the technical term wow. uh, that's being used right now. Uh, and, um, uh, and, and the way it works is that uh, in, and, and I'm, I'm going to use a bold word here, but in every case, uh, it, uh, it primarily has an emotional management function. They are trying to manage their emotional, um, you know, inner life in some way. And interestingly, it can be for one of sort of two themed reasons. Uh, one reason is that I feel no emotion. I feel dead. I feel numb. I feel disconnected. I feel disassociated with everything that's going on around me. Uh, and when I, you know, put blade to skin or when I... Uh, you know, bruise myself or when I burn myself or whatever the behavior happens to be, I have this brief flash of feeling alive. It reminds me that I'm actually alive Hmm. because of the physical sensations that are associated. Wow. Uh, And again, hard for us to understand when we're not engaged in this behavior ourselves, but it does awaken some kids from numbness. Uh, The other side of it, uh, and this one, frankly, is more common uh, in the experience that I've had with uh, uh, with students who self-injure, and that is, um, I feel this overwhelming, bursting sense of unmanageable emotion. I'm so um, I'm so overwhelmed by my emotion. I I feel it building up and building up, and I feel like I'm going to blow up, and I feel like I can't do anything to manage it. And then I cut, and all the craziness goes away. I, I'm over I'm overwhelmed with this sense of peace. Um, does it again, go, Does it go away because of the the pain? Well, well obviously, that's confusing to there, me. There are enormous control issues that are around all of this. And the reality is that for a lot of these kids who have been abused, who have been neglected, who feel abandoned, who feel betrayed, uh, a lot of the stuff that's pretty common for kids in our culture, um, the, um, the, the, the pain that they feel 
feels out of control. It feels like their their pain, their painful circumstances, their painful family, you know, whatever. It's controlling them, uh, and so they feel absolutely helpless to manage that pain in any way. Uh, but when it comes to the physical pain, there's this sense that I'm in control. Uh, and that gives me a sense that everything's going to be all right. Now, there are other physiological factors that are associated with that sense of peace uh, that are related to, uh, you know, an endorphin rush that actually physiologically uh, responds uh, when the body experiences physical pain. Um, and in fact, that's one of the reasons uh, why self-injury so quickly can become addictive. Uh, because there is that hormonal uh, response that the body kicks in with um, the uh, endorphins, the adrenaline, uh, and kids can actually become physically addicted to that. But again, it gives me a sense that I'm in control again. Um, and and I got to be honest, even though I've spent hours and hours with probably hundreds of kids who self-injure, whenever they describe this to me, this idea of Emotions blowing up inside of me. I cut and it goes away. I still shake my head because I cannot wrap my head around this. But I've heard it from, you know, dozens, probably hundreds of kids. Uh, and the, the language is almost always identical. And so I have to take their word for them. Somehow, this behavior gives them a sense of releasing all of those out-of-control emotions. I mean, the truth of the matter is that... Uh, it really seems to work. Um, and as, uh, as youth workers, uh, we just need to acknowledge the fact uh, that uh, the kids are using this behavior in increasing numbers as they are uh, because at some level it's really effective uh, for managing or controlling their pain. Okay, so I'm thinking of the, you know, the youth worker who notices a kid that he or she is really connected to. They either hear their cutting or see you know, Evidence signs of, of right. their cutting. Don't fully understand it, but based on what you've said the last several minutes, I, now at least I can articulate a why, mm -hmm. whether I understand it or not. Right. I know my first response would be to ask the kid, why are you doing that? Right. Coach us through that. You know, mentor yeah. us in how we should take those steps. What do you do if you see a kid that you love and uh, as part of your group and you want to help them? What, do, what are some first steps? Well, um, the first thing that we just have to recognize um, is that uh, there's always a story. And, you know, your best helping phrase is going to be, would you share your story with me? Would you tell me your story? Would you trust me with your story? Uh, often that's the place to start. Uh, and uh, particularly when it's related uh, to a behavior, you know, like self-injury, uh, I've just found um, that students are, if, uh, you know, assuming that there's a relationship of trust with their youth worker, uh, they'll be really, uh, you know, willing and, and, and often relieved uh, to have someone who's willing to hear their story. And as the story begins to unfold, um, there's, uh, there's a couple of things that become absolutely crucial to this process. Uh, and uh, the first one is um, that we... Um, that we notice the emotional content of the story. So uh, a lot of times, especially kids who have grown up in the church and grown up in Christian families, uh, have been taught that there's certain emotions you're not allowed to feel, you're not allowed to talk about, you can't be angry, you can't be afraid, um, you know, that kind of stuff. Um, when they do articulate those emotions, and sometimes cautiously do so, what we want to do is 
we want to acknowledge that those emotions are legitimate. So when a kid says to me, I was so angry in that situation, you know, it was just boiling up inside of me, what I want to say is, anger is an appropriate response in that situation. I would feel angry in that situation as well. And so when we begin to get a sense of the emotions that, that are underneath their story, if we can just um, identify or maybe even help them get a vocabulary for those emotions and then affirm the legitimacy, the, the, that's an appropriate legitimate emotion to feel when, you know, your dad comes home drunk or, you, you know, your parents are getting a divorce and you feel afraid, you feel like you're unsure. I mean, acknowledge the emotion and legitimize it, affirm the legitimacy of it. All right. Good. Then, once that emotion has been legitimized, then what you want to do is you want to legitimize their desire to manage that emotion. Makes sense. You know, I mean, it makes you feel fearful, and you don't want to spend the rest of your life feeling fearful. And so you want to somehow manage your fear, and you found a way that works. I get that. I would want to manage my fear as well. And so... Now we're, now we're in emotional space where these kids probably aren't used to talking honestly with an adult. But when the response they're getting from the adult is, I get why you feel that way. It's okay for you to feel that way. It's okay for you to not want to feel that way. And you've found something that works for you. Um, you know, that takes the conversation to a whole new level of trust. Once they've acknowledged that the, the, there's a connection between that behavior and the emotion they're trying to manage, then what we want to do is ask them to, to look at the other side of it. Now, you found a way that has a particular outcome. Your, your emotions go away or your emotions awaken uh, or whatever the case may be. Now, are there any unintended consequences that come along with that benefit? And of course, there are all sorts of unintended outcomes uh, you know, the secrecy that's involved, the physical pain that's involved, the scarring that's there. I mean, there's um, the, the, the way that that keeps them distant. They can't, you know, wear short sleeves in the summertime. I mean, there's, there's a million unintended consequences that come along with it, which they're all willing to outweigh with the benefit that right. comes about emotionally. So are you saying that we want to try to see if they can articulate what those consequences are? Right. Okay. Have they thought about the other side of it? Now, Here's what I found with students um, is that in most cases, they're pretty aware of the downside of this. Right. In fact, to be honest, Doug, I, I'm trying to think right now uh, of a self-injurer that really wants to keep doing it. Hmm. They want the benefit, but they know that they don't want to keep doing this. Right. They realize right. uh, from pretty early on in the process that it's, that it's destructive in all kinds of ways. So then <clears throat> you can begin now... To sit down with that student and say, your desire to manage those emotions is absolutely legitimate. Are there some ways that I could help you do that that wouldn't have all of those other in, unintended consequences? Right. You know, so can I help you achieve that legitimate goal, uh, but to do so in a way um, that doesn't disqualify you in all of the ways that, you know, self-injury does? And that's where we can begin now to have honest Talks, even about spiritual resources, about community, about other ways to manage emotion. And by the way, we, we know from tons of research that's been done um, that emotion 
uh, can often be managed best by by just talking about it. Yeah. Um, so it's it's really a leader saying, "I want to be there for you." I mean, in some ways, it's it's kind of de- describing a little bit. I don't mean to put it so much on the lower shelf, but no, but make it as easy as you can. Well, though. I'm going. It's kind of like with you know an alcoholic to say, "Hey, before you drink, call me." Right. Let's talk. And that's been the heartbeat of AA. You yeah. know, the sponsor system and and that may be the role of a youth worker just to yeah. say when you get to that place where the emotions are out of control they need to be managed you're at that crossroads and you're going okay I could I could do what's familiar I could do what's worked in the past yeah. even though it's really destructive in all sorts of other ways maybe I'll give a call uh, and uh, and just see if we can think of some options at this yeah. point and even just talk it through yeah um, and loving them in the midst of that obviously is is right. crucial. I mean, whether the kid blows it or not and doesn't call you and you see new marks on their arm on Wednesday God, night. Got to be full of grace. But, you know, I, I know there are times short here, but let me just say that when we make ourselves available to students um, in that way, it has to be with appropriate boundaries in place. Um, you know, we haven't had a chance to talk about the fact um, that um, self-injury is not suicide. Um you know, obviously there's an urgency when kids are hurting themselves like this, uh, but not an urgency that requires us at 3 o'clock in the morning to drop everything and jump in the car and run someplace. Uh, in fact, when we, when we respond with franticness in this situation, uh, it just raises the anxiety for, uh, for kids. Interesting. So uh, I try to stay real calm uh, and just say, hey, listen, um, you know, if, uh, uh, if we can talk in the morning, that would be great. Um, Take good care of yourself mm. in the meantime. I love you. Care yep. about you. Exactly. Um, but uh, but a frantic response just raises the temperature even more yeah. at that point. So we need to bring calm to the situation. Yeah. Well, we've got about two minutes left. So, you know, again, kind of thinking final shots. We're scratching the surface of this. And to all the Download Youth Ministry members, I've been talking to Marv about all the incredible stuff he's got on his hard drive related to cutting and we were talking about maybe doing some some pdfs or some some handouts that mm-hmm. youth workers could get to their you know so be looking on the site and maybe we'll uh, i'll twist marv's oh, arm man. enough to <laughs> now that we've got this recorded i have no choice right <laughs> that's right to to help us because you know i think about the teenagers that are in my house every every wednesday night you know kathy's got a small group of kids and mm-hmm. some of those girls are going through some wild stuff and sure. she doesn't know you know she's been around me in youth ministry for 30 years but you know, she doesn't have this type of training. So there's a lot of veteran leaders like myself that really rely on guys like you, Marv, to help us. What do we do in situations like this? You know, it comes down to the same basic rule that's been the heart of youth ministry uh, for uh, for decades, and that is um, it's relational pain, and we respond relationally. Hmm. Uh, you know, for kids who feel abandoned, we provide our presence. For kids who feel like nobody's ever listened to them, we listen to them. Uh, for kids who feel hopeless and full of despair, we speak words of hope back into their lives. That's what youth, pa- youth workers have, have done, whether they're volunteers or vocational. We've done that forever. Yeah. And, um, and it doesn't take a Ph.D. to do that. Uh, we can provide our presence, um, non-judgmental, caring, uh, loving presence. And uh, I, think, uh, I think we'll be amazed uh, at just how therapeutic that is yeah. uh, in the long run. Yeah, really good. Thank you, Marv. And uh, I realize for those of you that want more than this, you know, go to Marv's book, 
And say the title again. Hope and Healing for Kids Who Cut. Hope and Healing for Kids Who Cut. It's a youth specialties book, yeah. Youth specialties slash Zondervan. That's right. right. Mm-hmm. And uh, available on Youth Specialties website. And you'll be hearing more from Marv because we're just scratching the surface. But thanks for your time. Thanks for your commitment to even pause out of a busy schedule knowing that, you know, it's just you and I sitting in this empty hallway overlooking Nashville. But <laughs> you know that this is going to an audience of people who you've given your life to serve. So exactly. thank you for that. No greater pleasure. Thanks, Doug. Yeah.